the blazing brilliant vermilion diadem of the five ancient wandering stars we know today as the planets. In fact, the word planet comes from the Greek word planetai, which simply means wandering star. The ancients were well aware of these wanderers, the five visible-to-the-naked-eye planets of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. In medieval times, the sun and moon were also considered part of this wandering cosmic troop, thus the seven heavens. The Greeks dedicated a community center of sorts to Mars, the god of war, where philosophers and learned intellectuals would gather to hear the latest knowledge. They called it the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. The Apostle Paul preached his famous sermon in Acts 17 from Mars Hill. Medieval literature scholar and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis studied at length the influences of each of the planets through his literary and professional work. He even comprised a poem about their unique influences found throughout medieval literature. Here are some of Lewis's poetic lines about the red planet as it was known to people centuries ago. Quote, Mars mercenary, makes there his camp, and flies his flag, flaunts laughingly, all's one to Mars, the wrong-righted, rescued meekness, the liar made lord, his metal's iron that was hammered through hands into holy cross, cruel carpentry, he is cold and strong, necessity's son. End quote. Each of the planets in medieval times were believed to influence the production of certain metals on the Earth. Mars' influence allegedly fostered the making of iron. The sun helped produce gold. Mercury produced the liquid-like metal mercury. Jupiter produced tin, the moon silver. Saturn lead, and Venus helped to materialize copper. From these influences came the medieval idea of alchemy. But note Lewis's connection of Mars and iron to the cross, allusions to Jesus, the Son of God. Lewis believed that a Christian could rightly interpret the influence of the planets to aspects of God's glory. To gaze upon and wonder about Mars was ultimately an act in contemplating the glory of God in Christ. There is no question Mars still influences us today. We realize, of course, that Mars has nothing to do with the existence of iron ore on Earth, but we have indeed sent a vast quantity of metal alloys in the form of robotic probes and satellites to the Red Planet in hopes of discovering more of the secrets of our wandering neighbor, including signs of life. Tango Delta, nominal. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance, safely. So what is it about Mars that fascinates us so? Scientifically speaking, for every one orbit of Mars around the Sun, the Earth makes two. A Martian day is about 40 minutes longer than an Earth day, and Mars is about half the size of Earth with a tenth of Earth's mass. Mars has two moons, Deimos and Phobos, 
the latter name of which appeared on the late planetary astronomer Carl Sagan's license plate of his 1970 orange Porsche Targa. Phobos is the mythical god of fear. Carl Sagan, of course, was instrumental in preparing the Viking missions to Mars in the 1970s, something we'll hear more about on part one of this episode. But is it just the physical data about Mars that fascinates us? By no means. There is a bit of fear and trembling when it comes to spending billions of dollars to explore a cold desert wasteland that is tens of millions of miles away from us. There is something that tingles the spine and takes one's breath away when we see the dramatic images of the inhospitable Martian terrain. Vermilion sands, jagged boulders, alien rock formations never before seen or touched by any human being. What does it all mean? Part one of our armchair exploration of Mars, Wayne and I discuss how Mars influenced the construction of an observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. We also attempt to pronounce an Italian word. We talk about some of the missions to Mars and reminisce in general about our fascination with sailing among the stars. On part two, we'll discuss Mars' influence on science fiction and we'll ponder the reasons God may have had in creating Mars. But whatever you may think of the Martian world, man's fascination with this numinous vermilion diadem of the solar system is definitive evidence of the heavens' incessant, silent proclamation of the glory of God. Well, Mr. Spencer, it is another good heavens. Good heavens, it's another good heavens. Good heavens, it's been a long time since uh, since you and I have done a show, so here we are. <laughs> Hi Dan, uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about exploring Mars and uh, what's up with yeah, that? Yeah, what what is up? Uh, is Mars up? I always wondered. You know, <laughs> in space, are we shooting rockets down into space or are we shooting rockets up into space? What is that? Yeah, Dan. When I was in graduate school in physics, taking a physics class on mechanics, I once wrote a technical definition of up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't remember right now, but it's it's really kind of ridiculous. Uh, a long technical definition of up. Well, it was G.K. Chesterton who wrote a book called The Man Who Was Thursday, and he was contemplating the idea of what if, uh, you know, are we hanging upside down off of the planet? You know, you think about it. If I go to Antarctica, are we standing upside down, hanging with our feet <laughs> that, that up <laughs> – that what really up is looking at our feet and down is looking above us. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that driving home last yeah. night. I'm like, when we look up at the stars, are we looking down into the universe like a giant hole? <laughs> well, maybe we should just say Mars is out there. Uh, Mars, the, <laughs> directionally. So sorry for disorienting everybody so 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 soon in the program. Uh, <laughs> We'll wait to uh, recover for you to recover from your dizziness that we just created. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Mars, which is a pretty fascinating topic. We've already talked about space exploration. There's another podcast we did about why we go into the universe and explore. You can look at that. We'll put a link in the description below, so you can visit that podcast. But uh, 
Right. It was uh, why why do we want to go into space? And we talked about SpaceX and rockets, uh, and the, get, the whole idea of getting ready to have people go to Mars uh, and send astronauts to Mars. Uh, so this time, uh, it's more going to be about all the missions to Mars over the years. There's a lot more missions to Mars than people know about, uh, Dan. So I thought it's worth going through and talking about some of that. Yeah. Um, before we jump into the uh, planet itself and all the missions that we've done, I want to start off with a, a little bit of scripture. And I came across something this morning in preparation from the Bible an unexpected place. I mean, we can. you think, what does the Bible say about Mars? But really, I think this is a contrast because it, uh, it talks about our planet. And um, I want to think about, uh, it, it comes from Psalm 65. And it says in verse 6 that it is God, uh, well, verse 5, By awesome deeds thou, O Lord... Dost answer us in righteousness, O God of our fathers, or God of our salvation. And uh, in Psalm 50, verse 6, the Bible says that the heavens declare God's righteousness. And so I put these two verses together and I thought, Mars declares part of God's glory and righteousness. So when we're looking at Mars and we're contemplating Mars, we're contemplating part of the glory and righteousness of God. And uh, Psalm 65 goes on to say, Who does establish the mountains by his strength, be girded with might? Verse 8, And they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of thy signs. Thou dost make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. And so, verse 8, that uh, the whole earth, everyone in the whole earth stands in awe of what God has done in the, in the cosmos, what God has done in the universe. That's what the signs are, right, in Genesis. What are the, what, what are the stars for, Wayne? Signs right. and seasons and days and years. And so here in verse 8 mm-hmm. of Psalm 65, right. they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of thy signs. And uh, then he talks about the mm-hmm. sunset and the dawn, of course. That's, that's the uh, star that is closest to us, 92.9 million miles away. That blazing ball of plasma and gas and helium and hydrogen. And Wayne, if it was any closer, it would be too hot. And if it was any farther away, it would be too cold. That's and right. Mars is a perfect example of that because it's too cold. And uh, But anyway, I want to, verses 9 through 13 of Psalm 65 talk about God's deliberate and abundant care for our planet. He says, Thou dost visit the earth and cause it to overflow. Thou dost greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. Thou dost prepare their grain, for thus thou dost prepare the earth. Thou dost water its furrows abundantly. Thou dost settle its ridges. Thou dost soften it with showers. Thou dost bless it, bless its growth. Thou hast crowned the year with thy bounty, and thy paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip. The hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. And you know, Jesus says in uh, in the Gospels that the God also clothes the grass of the field, right? And he said that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like a flower. But here in Psalm 65, God clothes or decorates or arranges the meadows with flocks of sheep. 
And uh, that's you and I, too, Wayne. You know, we're here on the earth. God has arranged our place here on the earth. We are sheep of his pasture. He has put us here so that we can marvel at his signs and talk about how wonderful he has made the earth. And, of course, Guillermo Gonzalez argues that uh, the earth not only can sustain life, but it's in a perfect place to explore the rest of the universe. And um, so... That's my theology for the day. Yeah, and Dan, the more the more I've studied the, our solar system and other planets, um, it makes me appreciate all these all these things on Earth that we kind of take for granted, like oh yeah, water and and uh, grass and food, and it's it's all an environment that's uh, for our benefit. Right, right. So I had a I had a verse I wanted to read, Dan, uh, a couple of verses, and this is really. This is Psalm 107, but it's uh, really uh, talking about people going out into the ocean on ships. But I think there's a parallel here that we can talk about. So this is Psalm 107, 23 uh, and 24. It says, Some went out on, on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds, in the deep, and and I've been thinking, Dan, about the fact that you know, all kinds of people have been curious about Mars over the years for various reasons, and there's various stories and things about Mars. The uh, uh, the Greeks named uh, one of their gods after Mars, and um, so um, we can't go there ourselves and see it directly, but we can send robotic spacecraft to go and take pictures and explore for us. So uh, now there's there's been over 20 missions to Mars by different nations, and it's not just NASA that's gotten into the game. It's, there are other nations that have gotten into the process of yeah. exploring Mars now. And I, so I just think it's kind of, good to survey all of that effort a little oh yeah bit, there's so much interest in mars well it shows you uh, the uh the international yeah. aspect of what the bible says that that all nations know that their line has gone out throughout the whole world as psalm 19 says so the whole world right. knows about the glory of god interesting psalm that you picked there because I'm sure most of our listeners may know if you don't this is we're not going to judge you but this is a pretty cool fact that astronaut the word astronaut means star sailor astro aster is star nautis star sailor oh that's is, interesting uh, is sailor nautis nautical not navigation so if you're uh-huh. an astronaut you are sailing among the stars so your psalm is perfect because uh <laughs> Sailing the seas or exploring the cosmos has a very similar vein to it. In fact, Wayne, and I know we've mentioned this probably a hundred times on other podcasts, but um, the Apollo astronauts, especially my favorite story, the story is told by Michael Collins, the late Michael Collins, who was of Apollo 11, uh, in his his, uh, autobiographical experience of going to the moon. Um, Collins talks about how they learned star navigation and we have a whole podcast on star navigation that we did and uh, Collins was talking about um, how the Apollo astronauts learned to navigate their way to the moon by uh, stargazing they would go to a planetarium and learn star names and the positions of stars and Collins came up with this I don't think he came up with it but they used the phrase 
speed uh, arc to Arcturus and speed to Spica. And so the stars of you go off the handle of the Big Dipper, you go at a certain time of year, you go to Arcturus. You can see Arcturus is the red giant star in the constellation of Buotes. And then you go on to Spica in the constellation of Virgo. But that's what they did as they went along to the moon. It's 240,000 miles. You might as well learn stargazing because that's all you're going to see out the window. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how they, that's, that's one, you know, sailing among the stars. And that's what uh, we talked about in that episode about uh, how even the Navy is, is training its uh, sailors in case power goes out on a boat, uh, learning how to uh, navigate by the stars. And uh, that's a whole other fascinating aspect we'll, uh, uh, episode we'll link in the description so you can find out more about that. But in terms of Mars, as you say, Wayne, there are a ton of stories out there. Let's just, uh, before we get into the stories, let's give some people some astronomical facts, shall we? About yes. That. Yeah. Um, I thought that this was really interesting. Uh, I don't know where you were in 2003. Uh, I can't even remember what I was doing in 2003. I was living in Tennessee, I think. But uh, that was the closest that Mars has ever been to our planet in 60,000 years. Oh, really? In, in 20, so what happens is, yes, and this happens, you know, we have these uh, somewhat elliptical orbits. We go around the sun faster than Mars does. One of our years, uh, we do we do two years we do two laps around the sun for every one that Mars does. So if you go to Mars, right. you, have a, you have a birthday every two years, <laughs> two Earth years. <laughs> it takes mm-hmm. two Earth years for the Martian, for the Mars to go around. But it has a similar 24-hour day period. It rotates on its axis in 24 hours like we do. But so what happens when Mars is super close is that there's a couple of things that line up. Number one, the Earth is as far away from the sun as it is in its orbit and number two, Mars is as close to the sun in its orbit. Uh, and that, and when, the, when Mars, uh, when Earth is literally between Mars and the sun, you have opposition. That's what they call opposition. When the Mars, Mars is right out there, and then we're directly in between Mars and the sun. And so when Mars is at its perihelion, which means closest to the sun... And when Earth is at its aphelion, or aphelion, I, I don't even yeah. know, um, yeah. that it's farthest, the Earth is at its aphelion, farthest away from the sun, uh, we could basically reach out and touch Mars, if you will. Um, yeah, that's when the two planets are closest together. Right. And so in 20, I think it was 2003, I don't know, don't know the exact measurement, uh, the, the exact distance that it was. Uh, I think I had it here. Um but it was, uh, yeah, it was 35 million miles away from, from Earth. It seems kind of far, but that's the closest Mars has ever been to us uh, in 60,000 years. And you won't see that again for another couple of centuries. So if you uh, lived as long as um, Methuselah, uh, right. you'll be able to see it. <laughs> Other so, than that. <laughs> and, and that varies because it does. Both, it, because both orbits are slightly elliptical. They right. are both they are both rotating in space, right? And so, how close they are to each other varies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But right now, um, right here in Texas, um, if you're fortunate and you have a good view of the southwestern sky, you can see Mars just after sunset. It's right about nine o'clock right now, 
uh, just 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 before nine o'clock, if you have a good view of the southeastern horizon, southwestern horizon, uh, Mars will be visible just below Venus. Right now, you have the crescent moon and Venus. Uh, Mars is up in the daytime, but it comes out visibly to us here in Texas uh, just before sunset, and it would be a little difficult to see. It may get lost in the gaze of sunset, but uh, you can see Mars right now if you live in the northern hemisphere just before sunset. Um, a beautiful sight. It's a, a, a beautiful, bright orange uh, uh, star. It looks like a star, only it moves. So Yeah. Uh, Moves and, compared to the background stars. Yeah. Right, right, right. So uh, so that's a little interesting uh, fact. Also, too, um, there was some controversy recently in uh, February of this year. A science author, Shannon Sterone, I think that's how you pronounce her name, uh, was reminding all of us in a very poignant and uh, uh, somewhat saucy article <laughs> about uh, rebuking the idea of uh, Elon Musk's idea of uh, colonizing Mars. And uh, she reminds us all, as Carl Sagan did in 1980 in his book, Mars is kind of a hellish place to be, and it would be impossible, pretty much, for us to colonize it, despite what people have been telling us. It's kind of a myth. And she talks about Mars' very thin atmosphere, it's ultraviolet radiation, it's low mass, it's... uh, it's uh, it's it's very much less mass than Earth, so you'd actually, if you want to go on a diet, you could live at Mars and, and have less body weight, but uh, you wouldn't be able to enjoy it very long because uh, you can't expose yourself to the atmosphere without uh, a certain death within a matter of seconds. Um, very hard to live there. and Very hard to live there. Yeah. And so uh, what, I, what I wanted to do, and I want to go back, and what we'll do throughout the episode, I wanted to go back and reflect a little bit. Upon stuff that uh, Carl Sagan said about Mars in 1980 in his book Cosmos. And this is from the chapter um, Blues for a Red Planet. Kind of a catchy chapter there. Um, but um, Sagan says this, and I think, he's, I think he's still right. He says, what shall we do with Mars? There are so many examples of human misuse of the Earth that even phrasing this question chills me. If there is life on Mars, I believe we should do nothing with Mars. Mars then belongs to the Martians, even if the Martians are only microbes. The existence of an independent biology on a nearby planet is a treasure beyond assessing, and the preservation of that life must, I think, supersede any other possible use of Mars. And then he goes on to say, but might we, able, might we be able to live on Mars? Could we, in some sense, make Mars habitable? You know, and then he goes on to talk about the science of the planet, and the conclusion is pretty much... No. <laughs> it would be uh, probes, yes. Because um, Sagan was responsible for a couple of the missions you're going to talk about today, the Viking missions. Um, so Martian probes are cool. We've we've landed several of them there, and we're going to talk about those. Um, Martian probes, yes. Human beings, not so much. Right. So when do you think was the first mission to Mars, Dan? Uh, 50s or 60s, I think, Wayne. Yes, no, 1964. So. But, so okay. NASA was uh, already doing missions to Mars before Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Oh, so we were we were traveling farther away before we went to the moon. Yeah, the first, that. well, the first attempt was called Mariner 3 in 1964, but the launch failed. 
<laughs> but there were there there were other Mariner missions. Uh, in 1969, there were two of them. Uh, the Mariner 9 was the one that got more attention because it got to Mars and got some of the first good photographs of Mars um, in 1971. Mm. Then Viking... Okay, and that's what they used. They used, uh, they used the pictures of the Mariner, I think, Wayne, correct, to assess landing spots for the Viking missions. Yes, a little bit, but, you know, at that time, the the pictures were not so great as they were later. They weren't. Uh, Viking 1 and 2 was uh, launched in 1975, and they landed in 1976. So, Dan... I got out of high school in 1976, so it was right right after I mm. got out of high school uh, is when the Viking missions were in the news, and I'll I'll never forget it. It was really a oh. big deal, and they it had a yeah. lander that had a little scoop that scooped up the soil on Mars and tested did chemical mm-hmm. tests on it looking for life, and there was a big con- controversy yeah. about the results of that test for a long time. But they they basically right. came to the conclusion it wasn't life; it was just chemistry. Yes, yes. Interesting. Uh, you know, the our interest in Mars is uh, it's been a long. You said you mentioned the Greeks, and uh, you know it was the god of war, right? Right. And uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, preached his uh, famous sermon that is recorded in Acts seventeen on Mars, Mars Hill. Hill. The the Aeropagus, where people would gather to hear the latest news. It was kind of like Twitter of the ancient world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody coming along to see what this babbler has to say, right? Uh, very very much just Stoics and philosophers and Epicureans. It's where they had scholars Greeks. coming in to hear the latest ideas. That's right. That's right. And and so here we are, centuries later, and Mars is still very much a topic of, of, of a broad range of of interests. But one of the fascinating for our culture and our discussion today, one of the most fascinating, um, really, I think you could argue that uh, modern exploration of Mars kind of got its genesis for us in the scientific West was um, by, a, by a gentleman named Percival Lowell, who was a uh, aristocratic wealthy guy who had an interest in Mars because he was reading something uh, by an Italian astronomer, something written in 1877. Now, Lowell died in 1916, to give you an idea of what we're talking about. So he was reading this book by an Italian astronomer called Giovanni Schiaparelli. Of, uh, and, and Schiaparelli used this word um, in his description called canale. And I can just picture the, uh, the, the Christmas story, fragile. <laughs> Canale, you know, it leads to all kinds of chaos. But, but uh, uh, Lowell uh, interpreted uh, Canale as canals, but in Italian it just means channels or grooves. It doesn't necessarily mean canals. And, and you have to understand in Lowell's time, there were canals being dug all over the place. And so this idea that uh, he kind of mistranslated uh, Sherapelli's, uh idea of canals and thought they were sort of these man-made irrigation ditches that were dug to bring uh, water from the ice caps. So Yeah, and it, all of that was based on photos of Mars that uh, with yeah. were terrible actually. They were terrible uh, photos, but but uh, but but this inspires, you know, a billion, a, philanth- a a billionaire, I think he's a billionaire, millionaire, whatever. He had money 
And when you have a, a an idea and you have money to to, to see it through, you, what do you do? I'm going to build an observatory and a telescope. So the uh, the Flagstaff, Arizona Lowell Observatory was created for the sole purpose of investigating Mars. And uh, many of the wonderful discoveries have come from the Lowell Observatory, including the planet Pluto. It wasn't discovered by Percival Lowell, but by somebody that Lowell had brought to the observatory. Do you know what his name is, Rain? What is what is the uh, Clyde Tumbaugh? Clyde Tumbaugh. Now, I didn't know this, but you would think that the guy that discovers the planet should get a name. His name. Get, okay, so we could have the planet Clyde. I think that would have been kind of cool, right? But no, it's not. <laughs> it's not the planet Clyde. It's uh, the, the the Pluto was actually. I know this is a little far off from Mars, but not not quite. Um, the first two letters of Pluto, P L are the initials of Percival Lowell. And so the Pluto was actually named kind of in a way uh, for Percival. It's not an accident that it's Pluto. He, it, the planet was named for, for him. Oh, that's interesting. I read that from uh, okay. Carl Sagan's. I don't know if it's in the video, but it's in the, the uh, Carl Sagan's 1980 book, uh, Cosmos. He has this uh, fact here on page 107 in, in, the, in the book. I did not know that. I thought it was like a contest, or I didn't. I thought the International Astronomical Union picked it. But apparently, um, Pluto was named after Percival Lowell, who built an observatory to look at Mars, and then got another planet named after him, if you want to consider Pluto a planet. So uh, <laughs> let's let's get to some more Mars missions. Uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway. I, I think it's interesting, Dan, that some sometimes NASA has not been successful uh, we think about we kind of assume NASA is always uh, successful, but not actually really all the time. Um, so in 1992, there was Mars Observer that was launched from uh, Earth, and it actually got somewhere close to Mars, but it never made it into orbit. And communication with it was lost, so that that was kind of a failure. Uh, didn't get any information from Mars Observer. Nobody's sure exactly what happened with it, with to it, but uh, it could have got flung out into the universe. Yes, or it could but, have crashed onto Mars. It could have crashed. That's interesting. Um, then there was Mars Global Surveyor, nineteen ninety six, and it orbited Mars for seven years, and it got some really good pictures. Um, and in nineteen ninety six, there was also another mission called Mars Pathfinder. Pathfinder had a, a small rover. It was called Sojourner. So uh, this was interesting because it made a balloon landing. <laughs> <laughs> now, landing on Mars has been uh, a problem sometimes and a difficult thing to accomplish. So what they did with this, it was not a very large rover. And so what they did is they sort of pack it inside these round balloons, and it would look hmm. kind of like a... A triangle or a pyramid kind of thing. It was a uh, Martian uh, Martian rover airbag, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, a sort of a triangle made up of round uh, balloons, and it was packed mm-hmm. inside. So it would land, and then the balloons would deflate, and then it would just unfold, and the rover would take off. So when it landed, it and when it landed, it would bounce across the surface for a while until it stopped, and then it would all unfold and. <laughs> it just hopped across the planet. There have been many creative ways. I mean, you think about it, you think, well, why not they just put a parachute? I mean, we've done that, but but the Martian atmosphere is so thin, 
it, there's not a lot of resistance to anything that falls out of the sky on Mars. And so that's the thing. You need a, like a giant parachute and you need something else because just falling through the atmosphere, there's not enough atmosphere to slow it down. So right. And, and creative and the, with that. And the Sojourner was small. And so the balloons worked pretty well. So as they started making bigger uh, rovers and landers, they they didn't really want to use balloons anymore. So they uh, uh, they came up. They finally, it took them a while, but they came up with a better way of landing, where you use a combination of parachutes and rockets to land. Mm. And that's a complicated mm. way of landing, but they mm. NASA seems to have that down pretty good now. Yeah, we uh, we just landed. In fact, the the video is spectacular. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit later. But the video you can actually see the video of the latest. Uh, NASA's successful landing of uh, the the latest and greatest Mars SUV, uh, the robotic Perseverance. Perseverance. Now, yeah. that that thing is like uh, a Ford Explorer or something. I, I don't know exactly how big it is. Yeah, but, uh, about they, the size of a car. About the size of a car. But they did us. They it's the, it was the first time, and you can see this video on on YouTube. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll, if I can remember, I'll link that uh, in the descriptions. Um, but it it, uh, it it parachuted, and then it had rockets that uh, kind of guided its uh, its uh, descent and uh, successfully attached attached down. And then everybody at uh, JPL and were, were cheering for for the success because you know you're <laughs> you're landing a very expensive car <laughs> on a distant world, uh, remote controlled, and uh, it's not easy. Now. I wanted to – this is something else that fascinated me that makes something about Carl Sagan so fascinating. On page 130 of Cosmos, listen to this, Wayne. He's talking about – of course, you know, Cosmos was written just four years after the Viking probes landed, right? It was written in 1980. So Sagan says, the ideal tool is a roving vehicle carrying on advanced experiments, particularly in imaging, chemistry, and biology. Prototypes of such rovers are under development by NASA. Uh, they know on their own how to go over rocks, how not to fall down into ravines, etc. And so here he's talking about the next phase of Martian exploration will, will be these rovers. And sure enough, there's yeah. multiple and, rovers on the planet right now. And that's what NASA has done. So yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, you have on your list here um, opportunity. A uh, little sort of uh, kind of looks like uh, the robot from uh, Wall E. <laughs> it looks like Wally, a cute little uh, dusty, dirty uh, robot who uh, passed away, if you will, uh, several years ago, much to the sadness of a lot of people. When I was on Twitter, I saw this. Uh, people were mourning the NASA's loss of contact with Oppie. Its batteries died and get, it got stuck on a hill somewhere. Yeah, so uh, Spirit and Opportunity were two uh, rovers that were small, and they were just the, just the same, and they were in two different locations on Mars. They landed uh, uh, in 2004, January 2004, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So um, they worked for a while. They had solar panels for electricity, and uh, but... After some roving around and doing some good pictures and everything, they eventually got stuck in soft sand and couldn't get themselves out. So they mm. um, they didn't uh, operate for too long, I don't think. 
but they they did make it and they got some good information from them um then uh there's some other there's a number of others like Marge Odyssey was in 2001 and it's still operating it's it's the longest operating spacecraft Dan that mm. it's been operating for over 19 years now wow now which yeah. one is this uh, Mars Odyssey. Oh, now, what's what's the what was it designed to do, and what's it doing now? It's just getting pictures and information about the surface. It helped search for water on the surface and uh, looks for hydrogen and looks for ice and things like that. So it's had a lot of good, uh, important information that it's given us about the surface of Mars and water. Hmm. Hmm. Um. There's others like that you haven't heard about too much. Mars Express and Beagle was a European space agency mission, uh, but it was launched with a Russian rocket, and uh, the orbiter made it to Mars. But the uh, Beagle 2 was the name of the lander, and it had trouble with its solar panels, so it never communicated back to Earth or Hmm. anything. But the the spacecraft got there. So the only alien um, life on Mars, the the only alien life on Mars that we've discovered is our own. Because <laughs> technically we are yes. alien life to Mars. <laughs> but there has been no uh, no alien life, no microbes, nothing discovered yet. Yeah, and I should mention uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. It, got, it was launched 2005, uh, in August 2005, and it got to Mars in March 2006. This one, Dan, is really excellent cameras that got us really good data about uh, the surface of Mars. So, hmm. um, and this one, uh, like I read once that uh, its cameras can see something the size of a dinner plate on the surface from orbit. Wow. Which is uh, pretty high resolution. And Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter in- inspired another mission to the moon. Well, they-, they made the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter similar to the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Okay. And uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter got really high-resolution topography data on the on the moon. So that's the best map of the moon that we have. Mm. It was similar to the Mars mission. Um, then there was Phoenix in 2008. It was a mission to Mars to the South Pole. And this one was interesting because it was to the South Pole region. Uh, they wanted it to go through the Martian winter, but it lost power during the winter somehow. So the, the Martian winter is pretty cold. One of the really interesting ones is uh, called the Mars Science Laboratory with the rover was called Curiosity. And, Dan, this is one where NASA got kids involved. Yeah, that's great. NASA occasionally does involve kids, uh, school children, and I think that's really neat. So what they did was... There was a uh, NASA panel that were they started a contest across the country where they they had uh, school children like middle school kids write an essay to name the rover for this mission. Mm. And um, so it turned out there was a sixth grade girl named Clara Ma from Lenexa, Kansas, in Kansas City that came up with a winning essay and uh there's a quote here of her uh essays i think it's really neat yeah read that that's cool this is uh 
Okay, here's the quote from Clara Moss. This She was 12 years old at the time, so she would be in her 20s now. <laughs> oh, but, wow. Uh, so this is, uh, she says, Curiosity is an everlasting flame that burns in everyone's mind. It makes me get out of bed in the morning and wonder what surprises life will throw at me that day. Curiosity is such a powerful force. Without it, we wouldn't be who we are today. Curiosity is the passion that drives us through our everyday lives. We have become explorers and scientists with our need to ask questions and to wonder. You know, and that's that's a fantastic theological insight, I think. I think that's because great. It, it reminds me of Psalm 111, too. Great are the works of the Lord. They are explored by all who delight in them, right? Yes. And so God has, God has equipped us to be curious and to explore everything in the universe. I mean, you, you think about it, Wayne. People dedicate their lives to the study of the cosmos. And not just the cosmos. People study bees and bears and fish and trees. People dedicate their entire lives and careers and earn their livelihood from studying what God has made. I mean, that's just a fantastic testament to the reality of what the Bible says about God's creation, isn't it? Yeah, so there was, Dan, in this little contest that they did, there were 9,000 essays proposing names to this rover. And so Clara Ma got the the winning thing. And so she made it, she was able to make a trip to Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And she got to sign her name on the rover as it was being assembled. And oh, so wow. She got her name on Mars with the Curiosity rover. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. Also, uh, the, that one, uh, the Curiosity rover was the first, the first one to do this sky crane landing. You were talking about it. So what the, when they come in to land on Mars, it, the spacecraft is really moving very, very fast. Right. So what, they start by having a, a parachute, and this parachute has to operate at very high speed. It has to be used very high speed, and it can't slow it down very much because the atmosphere on Mars is extremely thin. Mm-hmm. But it ro- works for a little while, so it gets down within a certain distance to, from the surface, and then the, it starts to unfold the, the device. So it has two uh, devices, really. It has one that's um, the, the the craning device. It sort of holds the the lander in a basket sort of thing below it. And so the, the craning device is like um, it, it has rockets that fire off at angles so it can slow down. And it has the lower device that's lowered down beneath it on cables. So the, uh, the lander uh, uh, is extended down on cables below the other device with the rockets. It's remarkable how they how they uh, pull that off, and it has to so it has to slow down just enough and not run out of fuel uh, to get to the surface and not uh, just dump the uh, lander on the surface too hard and destroy it. Right? You really should see the videos of the Perseverance landing. It's amazing. 
because the t- the top spacecraft is pick- taking movies of the bottom one, and the bottom one is looking up at the top one while it's in the process of landing. And Dan, when Perseverance was landing, it all ta- happens in about seven minutes. Mm. So the spacecraft on its way down has to find a spot to land. NASA cannot tell it where to land exactly. It gives it the approximate area, and then it has to find a good, safe, smooth spot to land on while it's going down to the surface in less than seven minutes. Mm. So with starting, I think, with curiosity, the, the landers became much more sophisticated. They can scoop up material. They can study rocks. They can even cut into rocks. They can do all kinds of tests of the material in the rocks and the surface. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's become a pretty high-tech thing to get information about the Mars surface and the rocks. Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. Thanks for listening to another episode of Good Heavens, a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information about Good Heavens or other topics and podcasts related to apologetics, world religions, and cults, visit watchman.org today. For Good Heavens, I'm Dave Mitchell.